So how important is those pa- these past few moments? We gathered together and we stood to our feet and we lifted up our voices and we praised the Lord in singing. It's of utmost importance that we gather and praise and sing. When ancient Israel was faced with an attack by the Ammonites and the Moabites, they gathered together and they began to praise and sing. And when they did, it says in the text that as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. If there are enemies encroaching your life, it is when we come together and praise and stand and stand to our feet and sing with the top of our voices what we believe about our great God that he intentionally sets victory in motion for us. So we gather together and we praise him and we sing and we should do it often. And then we turn to his word and he speaks to our hearts and he changes us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we are reminded that this is an active engagement with the God of the universe. Our gathering is an opportunity for us collectively to join in one praise, acknowledging our one great God and asking Him to give us victory over our enemies, victory over sin, victory over our selfishness. to heal those we love, to help those who are hurting, to demonstrate your good hand and powerful hand among us. And we, Lord, acknowledge our dependency totally upon you. We worship you because you are glorious and great and powerful and almighty. And you have given us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our sins and death and hell. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach into the recesses of our heart this morning and bring into correction any areas of rebellion or stubbornness that you find there that would impede the great work of transformation that you are doing in our lives. For your glory's sake, I pray. Amen. I'm not much of an online shopper. It may have something to do with scars that I've received as a child, writing away for mail order things. I remember as a kid, I sent away one time for sea monkeys. Anybody ever heard of them? I saw this advertisement of little tiny monkeys 
dancing and playing and swinging on bars and doing all kinds of things. And it said, you can have your own little circus of sea monkeys by sending in some money and we will send them to you. So I did. I know what you're thinking, but anyway, I did. And um, the package came and it was a package of like sand or something. And you open it up and you pour it into water. And I have no idea what weird little tiny sea flea things were in, in the water, but they didn't look anything like monkeys. <laughs> it, it was nothing like what I thought I was getting. And I realize you're thinking, well, if you were that naive and stupid, then that's your problem. Well, as a kid, I learned. So now for me, I'm, I'm just like a, a fan of retail. I like going to the store. I like seeing what I'm going to get. I like holding it, touching it, trying it out, see if it works because I got burned badly. <laughs> if I had have gone and seen there was a little circus of little real little monkeys, I would, have, I would have bought that thing, but that's not what I got. So I don't like online shopping. Maybe some of you have been taken in by things like that. Please tell me that you have. <laughs> By flattery or false promises or misrepresentations, false advertising. It's okay when you're just buying a package of sea monkeys, but when it has something to do with theology, something to do with the heart, something to do with life and death, it's critical that we don't get taken in by false advertising. That we don't, in hearing, pick what we want to hear. Or seeing, we take what we want to see. Or believing what we want to believe. Or turning a blind eye to the obvious for our own personal benefit. Or to avoid confrontation or maybe dis discomfort. It came time to change Israel's king. King Saul had failed God miserably. The prophet Samuel was told to host a sacrifice and invite the family of Jesse. Because there in that family, God had chosen a king. You kind of know the story. It's found in 1 Samuel 16. We're not going to spend time there today, but it illustrates the issue. And standing before the prophet Samuel was one of the sons of Jesse by the name of Eliab. And Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. And the whole criterion for why Samuel thought that Eliab should be king, because he was tall like Saul. The thing is, the tall man had failed God. And God's words to Samuel were this, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know the verse. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God does not look at the size of your resume. God is looking at the size of your heart. Would you turn in your Bibles with me today, please, to Mark chapter 11? I'll give you a little background as we're moving there. 
it was Passover time, Jesus was making his last trip to Jerusalem. He had visited Jerusalem several times before, we know for certain as we read through the Gospels. But this was the last time he would visit Jerusalem because he was coming to be our sacrifice, our Paschal Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Today we're going to celebrate in a few moments the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for our salvation. It seems appropriate that we land on this text this morning because Passover was a reminder of redemption and rescue, reminder to the people of Israel what God had done to rescue them out of the clutches of Egypt that had so oppressed them, reminded them that they were to host a sacrifice in their own homes and sacrifice lambs, and they were to put the blood of those lambs over the doorframe of their houses so that when God came to judge Egypt, he would see the blood and he would pass over their homes and they would remain, the firstborn in their homes would remain alive. It was a picture of what Christ has done for us. The Lord God has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we in Christ receive a righteousness from Christ. We receive the blood of Christ over us so that when God sees us in Christ, his wrath passes over us and death no longer has hold on us. We are therefore now under no condemnation because of what Christ has done for us. That's what Jesus was coming to do. And um, it says in the text that he borrowed a unridden colt because that prophetically was how the king would ride into Jerusalem in messianic prophecy. Genesis 49 and Zechariah 9. Genesis 49, 10 and 11. Zechariah 9, verse 9. And so we pick up the story in verse 1 of 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This was a common uh, praise of Israel, Psalm 118. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, 
Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. If you're into underlining or marking up your Bible, and I recommend it, that would be a good underlined spot right there. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I'd underline that spot, too. In fact, I did. This is the Word of God. So, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on an, on an unridden colt, the kind a king can ride on. He came riding a donkey's colt, which is symbolic of riding in for peace. When a king rode in on a donkey, it was a symbol of riding in peace. If he was riding in as a conqueror or warfare, he would be riding a horse, which someday Jesus will. And we have a group of people here who I am calling the Hosannas. It's not a singing group, although they were singing. You don't want to be one of the Hosannas. You say, what? This is a triumphal entry. I thought this was a, a great and glorious moment. Well, yes and no. Jesus accepts the praise of the Hosannas, but the Hosannas are those people, those religious people who are represented by vast numbers of people in our world who have a personal agenda. Because if you follow the Hosannas along, you will find out that several days later, the same people who are praising Jesus are asking for him to be sent to a cross for crucifixion. Why? Because he didn't meet the criterion of their agenda. Jesus accepts the praise from them because... It is scriptural, what they are saying, but it was more framed by them in the form of a command, commanding a king. In other words, if you are the king, save us now. It was not 
so much a willingness to respond to the sovereignty of God as it was to make a demand of God. Save us now. Do your, in other words, do your king job. Tragically, they missed the point. Because the prophet Malachi had already established the messianic arrival in, to God's people in Malachi 3, 1 and 2 with the question, who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap or a laundryman's soap. Who can stand before him? This is the triumphal entry, that is, is actually an inspection by a king. We find out in the text that he came into Jerusalem and looked around at everything. He was on an inspection mission. The inspection of a king who comes to offer subjects who were in bondage to an enemy rescue in exchange for loyalty and trust. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus Christ, the one who has given himself for us, the one who has died for us, offering himself as king to those people who all their lives have been subject to sinfulness and slavery of self and death, to offer them rescue in exchange for loyalty and trust. That's what the gospel is. That's what we'll celebrate at the Lord's table, what Christ has done for us. That's not what they wanted. They weren't offering trust and loyalty to Christ. They had a particular agenda in mind, and that was political liberation. They wanted liberation from Rome. We have great swaths of geopolitical uh, realities in our world today that are religious and what they really only want is rescue from oppression to the countries that are leading them. We call it liberation theology. Holiness and sanctification and living right before God are not as important as being liberated from their wicked kings or queens, or whoever dominates them. But we read in the scriptures that without holiness, it's impossible to please God, to see him, sorry. And sanctification is the will of God for us. And then we have another whole other group of hosannas who want a magic physician a God who will offer them health and wealth always. They're the people who we talk about who, who are stuck in the idea of over-realized eschatology. They want the fullness of the kingdom to come now. Make me wealthy now, king. Make me healthy now, king. Jesus looks around at these people, and he looks around at everything, verse 11, and he makes a beeline to the temple. He's looking for a certain kind of people. 
You see, a temple is where a culture advertises the God or gods it claims to worship. That's what temples are. You go throughout the world, you will find that that's what temples are. And Jesus went to examine the temple to Jehovah God to see what that temple was advertising. Was it, in fact, advertising the true God or not? That's what Jesus does today. Since the Bible teaches us that we are the temple of the living God, Jesus continues to inspect your heart and my heart to see if we are, in fact, advertising the true God of the universe who we claim to have. Or are we false advertisers of that God? That helps to explain why Jesus bumps into a fig tree on his journey and curses it. You see, it says here in the text that the next day, verse 12, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. He went to inspect the fig tree. Now, you'll find that as you study the scriptures, there are two things that are often used as representations of Israel. One is a vine and the other is a fig tree. This is a symbol, this becomes a symbol, a sermon prop for what Jesus is about to do when he goes to the temple, when he inspects the temple, because he knew exactly the state of affairs at the temple. And so he goes to find out if there's any fruit in this fig tree, and it says in the text that he found nothing but leaves, and then it says because it was not in season for figs. And it says after this that he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples, in fact, heard him say it. Now, why would Jesus curse a fig tree that wasn't in season and wasn't even supposed to be giving fruit? Some commentators, in the most audacious way, have suggested that Jesus was having a bad mood that day. He was hungry and somehow the hospitality in Bethany wasn't very good. That's... Close unto blasphemy, if it isn't, to be honest. Jesus was never in a bad mood. This tree was a symbol of the state of affairs of Israel. And the out-of-season issue is, from my perspective, is quite frankly that Israel was out of season for some time. And Jesus was making the point that he was tired of their excuses for failing to offer to him loyalty and fruitfulness. They were out of season because they were facing the judgment of Almighty God and had now been under the domination of Gentile nations for some time and have for some time since then. The times of the Gentiles... The Gentiles are in season. Israel's out of season. It says in the text that uh, after he'd looked at everything that night before, it says it was already late. 
It was late that night and it was late for Israel, too late for Israel. Jesus was going to shut down the temple. And we're going to find out why. It says on reaching Jerusalem, verse 15, Jesus entered the temple area and what did he see? What was he looking for? He was looking actually for a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for the temple to be truly advertising the greatness of Jehovah God who, who welcomes people to himself, who, who connects with people in prayer, the living God. And what did he find? He found buying and selling and money changers and benches of doves and dens of robbers and leaders looking for a way to kill him. He found completely the opposite of what the temple is supposed to be. If any of you have ever been to a Middle Eastern market, you will know that it is quite a contrast from any notion or idea of a house of prayer. It's bartering and haggling and noise and smells and, and shouting and yelling and cheating and ripping people off. Obstructions, things in the way, chaos. Jesus was looking for a house of prayer for all the nations, not just Israel. We learn a lot from this text. We learn what, in fact, is expected not only of that temple then, but of the temple now, which is us. What is God expecting of our hearts? Chaos, busyness, noise, cheating, no room for connecting with God. A temple is supposed to be a meeting place with God through prayer. And this had become a house of commerce, noise and bartering and hollering and hassle. This is to be a place of humility and dependency upon God in order to connect with Him. It's also to be a place of instruction. It says, when Jesus had cleared, them, cleared the temple, He taught them, verse 17, to know God accurately. To know God, you must first know about God. Otherwise, you might be worshiping the wrong God. There's no shortcut, by the way. Jesus took no shortcuts. No shortcuts of some sort of special experience. It was teaching about who God really is so that you might know that you're worshiping the true God. Because who you worship affects your behavior. And if you're worshiping the wrong God, your behavior will be the wrong behavior. It's a place to represent His glorious presence, who God is. God is not cheap trinkets, carnival spells, and sleight-of-hand swindlers. God is awesome, transcendent. When we come together, we should have a sense of awe about who God is, our creator God, his greatness, his power, his love, his profound grace to us. Nothing cheap about that. It's a place to make access to God welcoming and without obstacles. 
The Pharisees had been scandalized by the fact that the disciples one time forgot to wash their hands. That they picked cereal on a Sabbath. But they were allowing this corruption to go on in the place that was advertising the great God of the universe and all the Romans were seeing a false advertisement about God. And all the little children growing up there. Perhaps they allowed all this to take place because they, as managers of the temple, liked their million-dollar spas in Elat or their sweet-ride chariots from the kickbacks they were getting from the money changers. There's a lot of religious leaders still like their kickbacks, you know. They'll tell you anything that you want to hear if you pay them enough. Peter draws attention to the withered fig tree. Look what you put out of commission, Lord. It's done. The era of Israel's stone structure temple was coming to an end. If the audience were young enough who were there that day, many of them would be dead in 40 years. While not a single stone of that temple was left standing as Rome sacked Jerusalem and put it out of commission. And Jesus' response to Peter and the other disciples is, have faith in God. You see everything you see around you, he says to the guys? You see all of this mess? Do you see any faith in God here? And he does a nice transition into prayer with his disciples, making certain that the apex of our prayer lives is first and foremost about believing in God. That's what prayer is, brothers and sisters. That's what prayer is. Prayer is trusting in God. And, and, and he, he says here to them, if, if I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, the temple mountain, the, the most significant mountain in Israel, because it housed the temple. You go there today and guess what's sitting on the temple mountain? An Islamic structure. And lots of ruins of the reminder of this very text. Of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. God's people's unfaithfulness to him. <clears throat> Jesus is not suggesting another sideshow here. Guys, here, let's do this. This will be really clever. This will be really tricky. This will be really cool. Why don't you just pray and ask that mountain to move into the sea? There's a context here. The context is critically important. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, actually chapter 3 and verse 12, therefore, God says by the prophet Malachi, of you, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, 
Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Are you hearing this? This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. They could never even imagine such a thing. And then it says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They had conveniently skipped verse 12 of chapter 3, and it moved right to chapter 4 and said, The temple, the temple, the temple. We can do anything we want and God is fine with it. And Jesus reminds them of verse 12 and says, this temple someday will be an overgrown mound of weeds if you don't reform your ways. So this is the context of the prayer he's telling them. Go throw yourself into the sea. Guys, you've forgotten about Malachi 3.12. The simple truth is the temple is on the move into the sea of people who trust in God and pray from an inner place of God's presence, who produce truth in advertising by their faith, real faith, not this pretend stuff. This is not a... cheap proof text for name it, claim it religion. This is a context for believing in God kind of prayer. Getting in on what God is doing, knowing the word of God, knowing the scriptures, and praying the scriptures. And when you pray the scriptures, believing what it says will happen, it will be done for him or you. So guys, go ahead and pray about the mountain. These are the men and women who recognize that prayer is cradled in grace. It will be done for us. We will receive it. We have nothing, no strength in our own. Everything we have received is by the grace of God. That's what prayer recognizes. Prayer recognizes that we are getting in on what God is doing in our future. And many times, God asks us to pray for hard things and accept them because we believe in God. That's what prayer validates. That's why James wrote, Elijah was a man like us or a person like us. It says the prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. But what was he asked to pray? In the text in James, James 5, he was asked to pray that rain would not come. Beloved, that's a hard prayer to pray. pray. For three years, there was no rain. Then he was asked to pray that rain would come. That's a good prayer. That's a happy prayer. But the truth of the matter is, If we believe in God and trust in God, he can ask us to pray in his will, whether it's hard or good. 
and we will. When Jesus is inspecting hearts, the temple, that's who he's looking for. Because we know that Israel's temple was replaced by Jesus. Church history demonstrates that to be true. He continues to look around at everything today. Real faith produces real fruit. He's not looking for hucksters who are hoping to make a buck or a blessing out of using God to enhance their own standing. He's looking for people who are zealous for the glory of God, His presence, His power, submitting to His will and His ways. Those who make a way for Jesus and don't get in the way of people, don't become an obstruction by our lives that turn people away from the true Christ. And knowing that I have no claim in and of myself to what God has given to me, and that you and I should be amazed every single day by the grace of God demonstrated in our salvation, amazed that, that my sins have been swallowed in His grace, should make us people who rush to forgive those who offended us. Because those people who are true recipients of grace become dispensers of grace. And God says, if you aren't a dispenser of grace, I won't hear your prayers. Father, we thank you for your truth to us today through this powerful text that, like a two-edged sword, pierces right through the bone to the marrow and gets to the heart of the matter. I pray today as we recognize that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to do ride-bys in our lives inspecting our hearts. Lord, I ask of myself and I ask of my brothers and sisters here, what does Jesus see in the temple of the Lord that I am? Is my life an advertisement of the greatness of Christ or am I a false advertiser? Thank you for the Holy Spirit and his work done in our lives today. For your great name's sake, I pray. Amen. You know, it um, tells us in the text in Revelation that Jesus walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are churches. The uh, ride into Jerusalem wasn't the last time Jesus inspected things. He's been inspecting things since then. I believe he walked among this lampstand today and is inspecting. He's inspecting our hearts because our hearts are the temple of the living God. And he looks at everything. 
I jotted this down for myself, but you might find it helpful for you as well. Who are you really, Rick? Am I really who I try to make my church family think I am? Do I bring honor to God by how I live and how I act? Do people remark about it? Am I making every effort to connect my family and friends and unbelievers to Jesus? Or am I an obstacle? Or allow obstacles to block the way? Am I faith-filled in my prayer life? Trusting God for hard things and good things? Am I a willing, eager dispenser of grace? Am I up to date in my forgiveness of others? Jesus looks around at everything. And today, he looks at your heart. And he sees everything. There's nothing hidden to him. Oh, Lord, may we not be the fig tree. May we not be a false advertising temple. But may our lives bring honor and glory to Christ. And may, our, may he, through our lives, bring people to know him. Our Father, we give you the glory and the praise. For you are truly, truly worthy. It is impossible for us to grasp the significance of the grace that we have in Christ Jesus, to be here today forgiven, to have death removed from us, the wrath of God removed, to have free access into the throne room of the Lord of glory anytime. And to have an eternal promise of home with our Lord forever. It is truly a great salvation. And we want you to know, O oh Lord, that we praise you, we honor you, we thank you, we love you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.